Uh, this morning I'll be preaching from Colossians chapter 3, and so if you would go ahead and turn in your Bible to chapter 3, and you can stick around verse 1. We'll be jumping around the book of Colossians at the beginning. Um, and you'll have to forgive me this morning. I'm getting over a cough, I'm no longer sick, but my voice might give out on me, or I might cough in the microphone, which would hurt your ears. So, fair warning, and I'm very sorry ahead of time. Um, we live in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So right now, as we sit here and as we leave, we are in the kingdom of God. We have the privilege of grace, of forgiveness, of being in the Lord Jesus Christ, being baptized into his name, being with one another and being in community with each other, where we not only know the word of God, but we see the word of God living and active in our own heart and in those around us. And we've seen throughout history and even now the effect that that kind of community has on the world. Jesus said even the birds would nest in the branches of the kingdom of God. That's taken from the Old Testament where the kingdom grew and grew and the nations gathered under its shelter. So Christ, even in the first century, has an expectation of the church that through the church the world would profit, even though much of the world would not be part of the church. And so we have all of these privileges we have all of this glorious reality around us, not just things we think about, but things that really are. But this is not the only kingdom in our reality. Some have called it the city of God, and then there's also the city of Babylon. There's the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom whose authority is Satan. The kingdom that we've been transferred out of. And in Colossians 3, there are a few verses before the passage we'll be looking at today that describe what members of this kingdom look like, do, act, and what this kingdom is all about. And so in Colossians 3, verse 5, the second half of the verse... Paul talks about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. In verse 6, he says, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. In verse 8, he says, Wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech. And in verse 9, he sums all this up by calling it the old man, which in verse 5 he calls the earthly body. And we're very familiar with the old man, and we're very familiar with our earthly body because we live in this tension every day, where we are in the city of God, where we're in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But our flesh pulls us back to Babylon. Our flesh longs for its home. And so a lot of the time, those of us in the city of God struggle to emulate what it is to be in the city of God. We struggle to put on Christ, as Ben prayed a minute ago. We struggle not to be in the kingdom of God because we are by Christ's work, but we struggle to live in such a way where the new man in Christ shines forth, and rather sometimes the new man is confused by the remnant of the old man we have with us. And so, if you're familiar with Ligonier ministry, something they do every two years is they do what's called the state of theology where they do a survey of both all-American society, at least those willing to respond, 
and evangelicals, where they kind of they boil down from everybody in the USA and they boil down to the evangelical church in America. And I'm not so concerned with what is clearly Babylon, what's clearly the kingdom of darkness, as I am what's close to home in the evangelical survey. And just a few questions that were asked. When it comes to gender, whether gender is fluid, a matter of choice, 37% of evangelicals agree that it is. When it comes to whether or not children are born innocent, meaning not born in sin, 65% of evangelicals agree. When asked whether or not God accepts all worship, whether from Hindus, Muslims, Orthodox Jews, or Christians, 56% of evangelicals agree that God accepts that worship. And this is, this is the big one to me. When asked if they agree whether Jesus was just a good teacher and not God, 43% of evangelicals agree. That's damning. And if this survey is accurate at all to the evangelical playing field, that means 43% of evangelicals are going to hell. You can't be a Christian and not believe that Jesus is God. And that's very concerning because what all this has to do with is what we know. And it has to do with the gospel. The gospel is knowledge. The gospel is information and reality given to you. It's information based on what was accomplished in history and how it applies to you. And all of this is explained to you through the preaching of the word of God. And if you have no knowledge of the gospel, you have no gospel. If you don't understand the gospel and you don't think Jesus is God, you don't have the gospel, which means that you do not have the power of God unto salvation, which means you are not saved. You are not in the kingdom of God's beloved Son. But all the while, this survey was pulled from men and women who believe they are in the kingdom of God. And, and for whatever reason, and for... I'm sure many different reasons, whether that be tradition or family heritage or whatever, that's a serious problem. But the root of the issue, I think, is what relates to our church. Because I don't think, I, I, I don't know all of you, but I, I'm pretty sure all of you confess Jesus is God. Uh, I'm positive that those of you here confess that Jesus is God. But when it comes to the root of the issue, how what we dwell on and what dwells in our mind affects how we live, what we say, and what we do, that's what this morning is about. It's putting on the new man in Christ. And toward the end of the passage it says, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's a reason that we let something simmer in us. And we become marinated in it. We sit in it long enough to absorb it so that we would live accordingly. And we know well, uh, whether that be just from hearing it growing up or from reading it, that our Lord taught from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So though I, I'm not sure how all of these evangelicals lived their lives who responded to this, I know that what they believe about Jesus Christ and what they dwell on in their mind, the information that they understand, does lead to their practice. And there's no way in the kingdom of God that someone believing that Jesus is not God has any fruit of the Spirit. And so we this morning need to evaluate in our church 
what it is we are letting simmer in us, what information we are dwelling on all day long, what things we are taking in and thinking about as we work and as we spend time with our family and our friends, and even as we lie down or as we get up, as Deuteronomy says. So as an overview of Colossians, our passage is going to help us answer this question this morning. In chapter 1, Paul starts from the objective, what some theologians call the historia salutis. In chapter 1, he's talking about redemption accomplished, things that Christ has done in and of himself that need no help from us, that there is absolutely nothing that can be added to Christ's redemptive work. He has accomplished salvation. And so in chapter 1, starting in verse 13, Paul writes, Who rescued us, he's talking about God the Father, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's amazing. In Acts 10 the Spirit says that all the prophets prophesied of the forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole story of history is pointing us toward our need for forgiveness and the provision of that in Jesus Christ. And in Him, not only in the Son of God, not just in the second person of the Trinity, not just in Jesus Christ, but in the Son of God's love. Who is He loving? Us. A descriptor of Jesus Christ toward sinners, the son of his love. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in verse 15 through 20, there's a beautiful hymn about this Christ and about the son of his love. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And this is what Christ has done, period. This is not dependent on you, your decision, what you want to say about Christ. This is something the Spirit of God declares to the world, Christ has accomplished this. This is the Son of God, the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Paul makes a shift in chapter 2 where he brings the history of salvation to the individual. Where he's not, he's not only concerned now with what Christ has accomplished, but he's concerned with whose door it's shown up to. And he says, starting in verse 9 of chapter 2, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh, in the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." So, this Christ, the firstborn of all creation, the, the one in whom is salvation, 
to those who are in him, those who are united with him, those who have faith, verse 12, through faith in the working of God. We receive this work. This work comes to us and is true of us. This is familiar to Ephesians. These books are very similar. Where in Ephesians 1, it says, In Him, God predestined us to adoption. According to Christ's work, we've been called. And so, as Paul moves through Colossians, he goes from the history of salvation, the order of salvation in the individual, and then he comes to the fruit of salvation in chapter 3. In verse 1, he says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, he's harking back to verse 12 of chapter 2, raised up with him through faith. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. So this is the context for our passage. Where Christ has accomplished redemption. You take part in this redemption. Therefore, we set our mind on Christ and the things above. So if you would go to verse 12, we'll be looking specifically at verses 12 through 17 this morning. So, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's a lot of commands in that passage. There are, there are actually only two indicatives. And what that means is there are only two foundational things, informational pieces that underlie the commands Paul's giving. The first one is in verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. And the second one is in ver at the end of verse 13, just as the Lord graciously forgave you. So Paul, as he's moving through these commands, bases them on the election of God and the forgiveness granted to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be honest with you, these commands are very self-explanatory. I, I know many teachers who are very capable and able to make interesting uh, a word study on kindness, maybe uh, patience or forbearance, depending on your translation, compassion. Um, I'm not capable of doing that. <laughs> I, I can't make each one of these words just beautifully come to you in a new way. Um, I, I personally, and this, I hope this doesn't sound rude, I think they're very straightforward, and I trust all of you to be very intelligent individuals anyways. So there's probably nothing more I could say about the English that's there. But what I do want to say, as, as we've moved from this state of theology and evangelicalism, and we've underlined the problem, or we've figured out the underlying problem, which is knowledge, and we're trying to come to sovereign grace, and we're thinking through, where are we right now? I want you to keep in the back of your mind this morning, kind of zooming into verse 16 at the very beginning, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And kind of ask the question, why? 
why ought the word of Christ dwell in me richly? And what does it mean for the word of Christ to dwell in me richly? Because I think from verse 12 through 17, and really through all that we're commanded in Scripture, the word of Christ dwelling in us richly and the word of God occupying our mind has been the central command of God for his people from the beginning. Or even in the garden, Adam was to remember the command of the Lord. And not just the command, but the promise and what he was called to. He was called to be head over the earth. He was called to have dominion over the earth and to fill the earth, to name all the animals, to create societies. Yet, he neglected those things. And when Eve was tempted, she wasn't asked, you know, some silly question. She was asked if God meant what he said. And so the test on Eve in the fall was whether or not she was dwelling on the word of God, whether or not she had it in her mind. Because from an abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the heart flow the issues of life. From what's inside of you comes how you respond and how you act and how you live. And as we're in this tug of war between kingdoms, where I'm in the city of God, but my flesh wants to go back to Babylon, the only thing that's going to increase our strength and increase our faith is letting this word of Christ dwell in us richly. And so, this time of year is extremely busy, um, extremely nauseating at times, especially if you have cable or watch the news or have some sort of streaming outlet for whatever news you watch. Um, particularly with the political season, it can be extremely draining. Um, you, and I'm not saying politics aren't important, so don't hear me saying that, but I am saying that the focus and the, the central idea, and if you take the word of Christ, put it in brackets, and maybe take out word of Christ and put politics in there, let politics dwell in you richly, that, that would be very, a very good description of where a lot of people are at right now. And not only this season, but for, for a long portion of the last year or two. And just, just to get this out of the way, I think politics are important. Paul said that we are in an ideological battle. We're tearing down strongholds of ideologies opposed to the knowledge of God. Christianity is a religion. It's an ideology. It's a way of thinking. And your politics are an ideology, a way of thinking. And you will have some sort of statistical similarity between how you think politically and what you believe in your Christianity. And it is extremely foolish to say politics has nothing to do with Christianity. And it's extremely ignorant to say that nothing I do in society has anything to do with who I am as a Christian. They are very interrelated. And there's a lot of calling out people this time of year saying, oh, Christians shouldn't be loud about, you know, how the, what they care about in society. Christians shouldn't speak out against abortion. Christians shouldn't speak out against, you know, whatever atrocity. But it's an ideology. And there's a very strong correlation between your politics and your religion. And so, in no way... My condemning politics in general. However, I'll give you an example. If my mother tells me, Joshua, I need you to take out the trash, please. <laughs> I can do two things. I can think about it in two ways. 
on the one hand, I could say, well, Christ loved me. I know it sounds silly, but Christ loved me. I love my mother, and my mom needs help, so I'm going to help her with the trash. On the other hand, if I dwell on taking out the trash, I can have whatever feelings I want to about taking out the trash as long as I do it. And one of the two are wrong, and it's obviously the second one. Politically, if I'm thinking about the word of Christ, saying Christ has loved me, Christ has forgiven me, I'm in the city of God, and I'm dwelling on these truths, then I will be able to discerningly move in whatever way I need to politically because I have that foundation. But if I am constantly fixed on politics and I have no word of Christ dwelling in me, I'm just politically minded. Just like I'm just focused on taking out the trash. And it's not good enough. It's not good at all to have the right application of the Word of God with no Word of God dwelling in your heart. Pharisees were very good at that. Where they had all of the right things to do, but they saw, they seek through the Scriptures. Don't know whatever tense I need to use there. They seek through the Scriptures because they think in them they have life, but they miss the main point, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And so, this political season, just as a subject, we'll move on to another one in a second. This political season, what has consumed your mind? What do you dwell on? Which city are you focused on? It's very easy to sit in the towers of the city of God and just have your binoculars in Babylon all day long. It's a very different thing to live in the city of God and enjoy it and be very different than Babylon. And so, in your daily thinking, what consumes your mind? Is it the news article? Is it the failures of the government? Is it the sin of certain politicians? Because all of those things are awful, and they're very easy to think about, but they are not the Word of Christ. And this might sound even more silly, but this holiday season, I, I just as a story, I used to think as a teenager, like I, I, can, I can focus on the word of Christ during the holidays. I don't know what all this stuff's about. Basically, my only responsibility was putting on my seatbelt. So <laughs> I, I had nothing else to think about, and I'd, I would hear you know, people talking about, well, I just really need to stay focused on Christ during the holidays because they're so busy. And I'd be like, man, I'm a Christian. Don't all Christians think about Jesus during the holidays? And then I got married, and now I have a son, and I have a million more responsibilities than putting on my seatbelt. And I very much understand the plight in as little way that I can, being a young husband and a young father. It is hard. <laughs> to wake up in the morning this time of the year and to dwell on the Word of Christ. It is my constant failure at the end of a long day, especially after seeing family, to sit down with my family and to teach the Word of God to them. It's very easy to ride on the fumes of an easy summer teaching the Word of God, saying, just having more time to study thinking that my, my family's got it right now. It's been a busy day. And to have no regular place for Scripture in my day-to-day -day life. When I get up early in the morning to travel, to go see a certain family, when I get home late from seeing them, just to confess my sin to you, the last thing on my mind is sitting down and opening the Gospel of John. It's 8 o'clock. <laughs> I'm tired. And so I understand. But that's not dwelling on the Word of Christ. And that is not letting the Word of Christ dwell in me richly. 
and in the same way, in whatever way you can, I'm not saying have an hour-long Bible study, but in whatever way you can, is that word of Christ there? Has it been there so far? Because it's very different for the word of Christ to be your focus and then to go see that one family member than it is to think all day long about that one family member and how it's probably going to go. <laughs> because that's not dwelling on the Word of Christ. And something that I think this is the first time I thought about this, or recognized it at least in myself, it's so easy to have no focus on the church during these last two months of the year. To have no ability or cut out time to be intentional with your body, with this body of believers. Because we're going to we're going to see this family, we have this trip that we need to take, or we have all these things that we need to do. Where the body of Christ becomes almost a duty on Sunday, or almost an addendum to our life. And there's a reason for that. And I think the product of all of these things that we have, that we have to do, that we have to think about, that we have to get ready for, just inevitably pushes us further and further away from a regular habit of being around the people of God. And there's a reason that less focus on the Word of God leads us to less time around the people of God. I know personally I have less to say whenever I'm not focused on the Word of God. I'm a very boring individual. <laughs> the only thing that I have is the Word of God. At least I feel that way And when it comes to talking to people. For those of you who know me, I'm terrible at small talk. <laughs> and I'm sorry if I ever seem rude. It's just awkward. But as we come together, we, we have very little in common because our, our flesh begins to reveal itself again. We say, well, I have to do this. I have to go to this place. And, and those things are important and they're true. But this kind of becomes the result of focusing on the world, looking at what Babylon's doing, and missing our main call, which is to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And that sounds like a lot of failure. And that sounds like a lot of lacking in me and us. And that's not the point of my sermon. But I hope in some way, shape, or form that gets to your heart. To a degree where you can see whether or not it's your daily devotion or the way that you spend your time, that somewhere it's very difficult to let the Word of Christ not just dwell in you, but dwell in you richly and let it consume you. And so what is this Word of Christ? Particularly here in Colossians 3, and when I talked about the indicatives earlier, the first is the election of God. And if you would turn to Luke 18, this is a beautiful verse. And when we're considering our election and we're considering all that Christ has accomplished for us, and Luke 18, verse 7, just a, a very small thing from our Lord. Now will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. That's beautiful. Holy and beloved, elect children of God, you who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over you? He is concerned for you. 
church. He's thinking of you. Isn't that amazing? That almighty God who dwells in inapproachable light has you on his mind. That he is strongly concerned for your cries. All your plight and all your struggle, God is longing for you to be at home with him. And in John 17, you can turn there if you'd like. Our Lord says the same thing in his high priestly prayer, verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. That's astounding. That Christ in all his glory longs for you, church, to be with him where he is. That you are on his mind. These are the things that we can dwell on. The things that we're called to consume our mind. They're not bad things. They're not heavy informational things that we try to hold together and they might only be for the intellectuals. These are gospel promises to every one of us. That God is longing for you to be home with him. And back to Colossians. He speaks about election, being chosen in Christ, being holy and beloved as Christ is holy and beloved. And in verse 13, he says, The Lord graciously forgave you. First thing, God is the one who forgives. So it's very crucial to see that the Spirit of God through Paul is shouting to us that Christ is God, contrary to what 43% of evangelicals believe. But that forgiveness, church, has come to your door. You have been forgiven of your sins in Christ. You have been pardoned, and not only pardoned, but counted righteous as Christ is righteous. You're not brought back to neutral, but you're brought all the way to perfection in Christ. Where because of what he's done, both in his sacrifice and his life and resurrection, you can now be counted as he is, because you're in him. You, the elect of God, holy and beloved, forgiven in Christ, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Again, this is not a, wears, a tiresome, weary word to focus on. This is a glorious word that isn't just information, but is reality. This is the world in which you live, church. 2,000 years ago, a man died on a cross, and he died for you. His blood was poured out on your behalf. That really happened, and just as real as that event is, so is your salvation and covering by that blood. All in him. Have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's real. Not just something to memorize, but something to believe and hold on to and trust in. And so, we are to have a heaven-bound gaze. Like he says in verse 1. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Our binoculars, like I said last time, ought not be pointed toward Babylon, but toward heaven. Because, as the writer of Hebrews says, we've been brought to Mount Zion already by Jesus Christ. We've come to this glorious assembly where even in our gathering, angels are rejoicing and glaring at us with great mystery in their eyes over what God has done for us in Christ. And so, in our life, we're not, we're not focused on everything around me primarily. It's important. But we're not dwelling on those things. Because the word of Christ is there, and it makes no room for anything else. Where the word of Christ is, flowing from it are rivers of life. Because that's where the Spirit of God is, who gives life. The same Spirit that raised Christ, and the same one that will raise you on the last day, is dwelling in you now, not only to be there, but so that in His dwelling, the Word of Christ would do its work in you. That you would not just be justified, but sanctified. That that declaration of righteousness that requires absolutely nothing on your part, where God even grants you the faith to believe, that faith in an ungodly man is counted as righteousness in Christ. But that same word in which God declares you are righteous is a creative word, as it always has been. Whereby speaking that of an ungodly man, that ungodly man begins to become more and more conformed to the image of his son. Whereby saying of one who possesses no righteousness in himself, he is righteous on account of Christ, so that man will also begin to look like Christ. And so as we stare into heaven through the Word of God, we see this glorious image of the Son of God. And we behold Him dimly for now, but we behold Him with spiritual eyes that have been opened, with eyes that can see the Word of God and a heart that can be ever changed by it. Where the man that lives in the city of God and finds his flesh drawn to Babylon ever loses his drawing to Babylon because that word in and of itself is powerful. It's not just information. When God said, let there be light, he didn't just say a statement, but that statement created light. And so, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, I don't want to butcher it, so I'll read it. Excuse me, not 4-4. Four, 4-6. Four. Four, For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He goes on to talk about our glorious transformation. After talking about being moved from glory to glory. And so, in, in, our, in our political world, we don't have politics because we learned them from a certain side of things, or a certain side of history, certain news outlet. And we don't have them because somebody told us them. Because a, a family member very passionate told us to think this way. We have our political opinions because the word of Christ dwells in us richly and leads us to such opinions. And if that word of Christ is there, like we said, it's not enough. But look at how big this book is. It's not just a book either. It's God's word given to you. And there's so much to understand. There's so much to behold. And from cover to cover, you are beholding Christ. And in all of these things, it should be far more glorious to us to let that dwell in us richly than an opinion. 
because we can have the truth instead. And we can live based on that truth, that river of life pointing us toward what is right, not just an opinion. And in all of this thinking about what do we do and how, how should we vote during this time, we would have the mind of Christ where they're not filled with our good decisions, but what the Word of God tells us to do. Is that not far more, does that not provide far more confidence than a well-based opinion? And on the holidays, we're not thinking how busy we are, or the, everything going on around us, but we're dwelling on Christ and His Word. And because of the Word, we will begin to be like Him. We'll be prepared to go see so-and-so, and perhaps share the gospel even with them, to see the same work that God has done in us, done in them. And we won't have disregard for the church during this time because the word of Christ will dwell in us and we'll know that this is home. That this is heaven on earth. That it's here that we receive the word of God preached. That it's here that we receive the means of grace. That it's here that we're stirred up to go out into the world. This is home base, church. Amen. And this is where we're far more prepared not to judge one another. And not to sit here dwelling on each other's faults or saying certain things that might get somebody. But this is where we are to be mutually encouraged in the faith. Where what you say has an impact on me because it's the word of Christ dwelling in you, not just your words. And what I say has impact on you because it's the word of Christ and not just my words. Because we could sit here all day long, but if there's no word of Christ, it doesn't mean anything. And so we come and we gather and we feast on the Word of God. And that becomes crucial to the believer because he finds his home in the city of God. And as he goes out of these doors and he sees Babylon and he sees what things are like, perhaps a Christian or two on their own, he remembers what home is like and finds encouragement for his race. Because he's not in exile. He's a citizen of a heavenly country. Of the new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells. And so, I and you will look like Christ as much as I focus on Christ. It doesn't stop when you are really devoted and just hold there until you come back. We are constantly torn back and forth between the Spirit of God and the flesh. And there is an equation between how much this Word of God dwells in us and how much we exemplify Christ to, toward the world. And so... With all of these commands to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, putting on love, real love, and letting peace dwell in our hearts and doing all that we do for the glory of God. All of these things are only possible through the dwelling of the Word of Christ in you. And it, it, I hope you notice it's by the positive. It's by what you are actively doing. It's not by the negative. And what I mean by that, and here's a, a good analogy, is if, if I am so distracted by social media and I say, I'm done with social media, I'm deleting all my apps, right, for the sixth time, then I no longer have social media in my life and I don't have all of this distraction on my phone. But I have an Xbox, so I can go play my Xbox for a little bit. Then I, and, and then I realize, oh, well, it wasn't the social media, so I, I should just like, be mature 
and re-download my apps, and um, I'll do better this time. But my focus is always on what I'm not doing. My focus is always on what I need to cut out. And if you notice in verses 12 through 17, Paul says absolutely nothing about what you need to cut out. And he does beforehand and when it comes to attitudes. But the whole focus of our passage is what you are to dwell on, what you are to focus on, what you are to be like, not what you are not to be like. And we talk in the Reformed world a lot about putting the flesh to death. But I hope that you know it's only by seeking the things above that you will put the flesh to death. It's only by aiming and striving to be like Christ by the power of the Spirit that you are putting the flesh to death because they work together. And so as we're called together in this body, I believe that this is a a truly blessed church where we're not struggling in many of the ways that many churches struggle right now. And praise God for that. Because the word of Christ is the focus here. But in each one of us, your health and your focus on the word of God directly impacts whoever you're sitting next to. You are called in one body. If your finger is infected, your whole body seeks to fight against it. If one of us does not dwell on the word of God, then my health, your health, and everyone else's is impacted by that. And in our health and in our dwelling on the word of God, how much better will we be as a body for it? Where we'll not only be doing bare minimum, and I'm not saying we're doing bare minimum, but we will not be hitting bare minimum, but we will be striving after Christ together and encouraging one another in this race, not only to know the truth, but to live like Christ. And that's a glorious call, where it's not just a call, but it's something God has provided for so abundantly that he himself is in you to accomplish it. So your hope is based on not your own doing, not your own ability to be kind or compassionate, but God's ability to transform the same sinner that he transferred out of the kingdom of darkness to look more and more like his beloved son. So, brothers and sisters, I'm very thankful to be living in the city of God with you all. And through much prayer and striving, Lord willing, we will be much better as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Amen.